Hello, and welcome to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast with me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. In this series, I talk to astronomers, artists and other fascinating people about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast is created by Onlanta in association with the Scotsman. Our 2022 festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise and Culture and Business from Scotland. Catherine Haymans and Joe Zuntz are astrophysicists at the University of Edinburgh. They also do a comedy show together. The universe, Does Anything Matter, began life at the Edinburgh Fringe and is now coming to the Isle of Lewis for the opening night of the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival. In 2021, Catherine made headlines by becoming the first woman ever to be appointed as Scotland's Astronomer Royal. We talked about that quite a bit in our conversation. We also got into dark matter, maps of the universe and the best astronomy jokes. I began by asking Catherine and Joe to describe what it is they do for a living. After you, Catherine. <laughs> right, I am Catherine Haymans. I am a professor of observational cosmology. That's actually my official title, <laughs> yeah, which means I observe the universe, which I think is a cool professional title. I also have another very swanky title, which is the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, which means I have a very shiny tiara with stars on it from the Queen. I don't actually, <laughs> but it's only a matter of time before she said <laughs> You were expecting that in the post any day. Yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, I am Josephs. I am a reader in cosmology, which is lower than a professor. Lower, quite a lot lower. Fond of, fond of reminding me. Um, <laughs> I also study cosmology and, like Catherine, do mostly lensing, which is how gravity bends light. So I'm interested in that and in working in these giant collaborations of of, of loads of people, because the, the kind of era when you were alone genius going to a mountain top with a telescope is now kind of gone, yeah, and, gone. and we both work in these kind of yeah because I have groups. to work with you it's true yes <laughs> you are lucky in that in that way <laughs> uh, so I wanted to start the interview that way just to kind of to see if you would say something funny or if you would try, try and play in a serious <laughs> sort oh, of sorry. way what you do oh we can do that seriously should we do that seriously right <laughs> we could do it in a Brian Cox way couldn't we no neither of us can do it in the I Brian can do Cox Brian way. Cox I studied the wonders of the universe <laughs> when, I, when I moved from where exactly. <laughs> Then I joined the Beatles. <laughs> did I not do the right accent? No, you did a Liverpool accent. Is that not Manchester? No, oh. no a different place. <laughs> um, how did you both meet? Ooh. So this, whenever anyone asks this, usually you forget where you first meet people in astronomy because everyone goes to, I'm sure you came for a seminar sometime, somewhere I was, yeah. or, a, or a conference. And we just, I saw you and wrote down some things you said and then forgot about it. So probably years before we consciously met. No, I interviewed you. I think we met before that. No, no, no but no, you did interview the me. First time, the first Catherine, time I met you, I interviewed you for a Catherine job. Catherine did interview me for a job. Which, which I didn't give, give him. him <laughs> on the grounds that she didn't think I'd be interested in the thing I have now built my career on. Yeah. Well, you gave a very bad interview. What no, did I? No, I didn't know that. It was a terrible was interview. It? I don't know what I did yeah. at all. Yeah, you, know, you, you crammed your slides with words. You used lots of complicated language. I had no idea what you were talking you about. You did. You, what, I didn't offer you the job. No, you did. You didn't know what it meant, though. Talk. Well, we're gonna have an argument now. 
<laughs> anyway, I interviewed Joe and I thought, what a nice man. <laughs> I thought, what a nice man. But unfortunately, I don't think he's interested in what I do. And yeah. you're right. You then got employed yeah. by our dear friend, Sarah, Sarah. Bridal. Yep. Who, and then you started working on the same stuff. And then she went off and worked on climate change change and useful things instead and we're still doing the same old same old trying to understand the mysterious dark matter and dark energy in our universe yeah. all those trivial yeah. things like trying to understand the universe and how everything's made you know that's the unimportant yeah. stuff yeah trivialities yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so how long ago was this Ooh. <laughs> See, we're both old enough now that time has kind of lost meaning. Mm. It was 2010-ish, maybe a bit later. It's way before kids, way before. But not before my kids. I was just trying to date it. Oh. Was, with, was I pregnant at the time? <laughs> so <laughs> I've got three kids, Andrew, so I can usually date things by was I pregnant <laughs> or not at the time that this happened. So, yeah, 2010, about, about right. Very yeah, good, yeah. yeah, very good. Sorry, I confused there because Catherine also works on a survey called KIDS. Yes, which sorry, is, it was confusing. stands yeah. for the Kilo Degree Survey. Um, astronomers like really abusing acronyms. It's really tortured. Um, and I think I reviewed one of your papers where you described the calibration process for mm. this, which was called School for Kids. Yeah. And I think I told you in the referee report that you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> it was a brilliant acronym. <laughs> We love, we love acronyms in astronomy, Andrew. We love them. There's loads of really ridiculous... Like, so dark matter acronyms, hmm. right? There's there's the, the best candidate for the dark matter particle is called the WIMP, which stands for Weakly Interacting Matter Particle. And the other option is called the MACHO, which stands for... Massive compact tailor object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is ridiculous. So And so you go to dark matter conferences and people are talking about WIMPs and MACHOs and they're all like... I mean, only men would come up with that. I, I think acronyms are less funny than you're imagining. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation. Okay, right. <laughs> I don't know, Wimps and Machos is pretty good. Um, when did the idea emerge of doing a, a comedy show together? So I think that came out when I got asked to do a very impromptu one in Oxford. And you dragged me along. No, you came along happily. You you, you would have loved it. You came up to me afterwards and said, oh, we should do that together. That'd be really fun. <laughs> he made me do stand-up comedy in a pub in Oxford and I'd never done it before. I didn't make you do that. That was, that that was, was Renee. That was Renee. Renee. Yeah, yeah. Renee. So our mutual friend, Renee, who is a very amazing person um, and, a, and has done this as well, has done stand-up astro stand-up before. She's a professor at the Institute of Advanced something in Toronto. The Dunlop, the Dunlop the Institute. Dunlop Institute mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so they they needed they they decided to do a comedy sort of evening for people at this particular conference. So so we were at this conference and it turned out to interact intersect with a an evening of comedy at the local pub, um, which they kind of got involved with. But they didn't actually plan this, <laughs> so they they just asked everyone uh, about three days before. <laughs> could you come and do some a talk at this thing and I think it didn't have to be funny I think to be fair to them they didn't say it had to be light-hearted but didn't have to be a comedy thing um and in that three I I quite like that kind of pressure actually so I think in that three days I wrote the bit that is my favorite bit now that we we start this show with yeah, but you can't we, tell, we're not people, tell, you can't no, tell no. people how we start. No, no, show. I'm not going to tell you. But it, you know, if you come on, if you listen to it and then come the along, time. it won't be funny. The second that's time. true. But if you come along, just remember. You, know, you don't have to remember. That's fine. But yes, we. we <laughs> I, in that anyway, that worked very well. And anyway, I think that was fun, wasn't it? That was a nice kind of evening. And then we sort of did, sorry. Do you want to say something about that? You looked like. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I just drank so much alcohol. <laughs> I can't actually remember because I was so petrified. But I really enjoyed it. I think. 
Nobody booed me off the no, stage. No, no, it was good. It was well received. Yeah. Um, and and um, then the Fringe came up. Mm. So Edinburgh Fringe has an amazing thing called the Cabaret of Dangerous Ideas, which runs throughout the whole Fringe Festival. And it's where they get academics to be funny and they train you in how to be funny. Mm. Now, Joe, of course, was naturally, naturally funny already. Um, and... I had to actually skip some of the training sessions because well, I was busy doing real science. (laughs) Um, I had nothing to do, so I was able to go along. So Um, I was like, Joe, brief me on what was said. How do I be funny? I've got five minutes. So so basically, the long and short of the situation is Joe is funny and I'm just the kind of the... I'll I'll explain the science and Joe will make it... I'll occasionally chip in with sarcastic remarks. And 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 that seems to get on quite well. So yeah, and it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. But Cody was great fun. Yeah, so we did this. We did the cabaret intro days. It must be about four years ago now. Yeah, I've forgotten the year. Um, and the 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 challenging part is so most of these dangerous ideas are things like animal welfare is bad or child slavery is good or something something controversial in some way. There was that one. There was one about child slavery or something. I don't remember. They were just wrong. But anyway, it's it's possible to do that in many areas of science, but it's very hard to be controversial in astronomy, yeah. externally at least. Uh, well, you're either not controversial at all, or you are exceptionally controversial to the small fraction of people who do not like the idea that the, the world is more than 6,000 years old. Those people really hate us. Flat earthers. Flat earth, actually, flat there are earthers flat earthers around us. now. That yeah. is true. There are flat earthers now. Which has helped a great deal in finding a controversy. I mean, just look at the moon, people. I mean, if there are any flat earthers listening, just look at the moon. Wow, you've, you've convinced them completely. <laughs> well, no, all you have to do is go to Australia and the moon is up. Some of them, down, don't, some of them don't believe in Australia. You oh, know. Interesting. Some of them. Anyway, so we um, we had to sort of struggle to find a controversy or something controversial about astronomy, but we hopefully we managed that. And what, what was the controversy about astronomy? Do you remember? So the question the question we asked is the same as the title of, of this show, in fact, the show we're doing with you, which is um, that you don't matter. Um, mm. So this is the idea that the universe is so vast and so immense that there's really no way in which you can say a person matters at all. <laughs> so the the kind of minuscule existential crisis part of astronomy, you know, how yeah. how 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 infinitesimal we all are in the whole thing. Um, and that's not super controversial. It's uh, I, I think I think you either believe it or you don't, and it's a kind of there's no mm. middle ground really. So it's very hard to be very hard to be controversial with astronomy. We tried our best. The actual controversies we we genuinely had, which came up during the rehearsals. So we, we work in rival collaborations. Yes, mine um, is better than Joe's. Catherine's is smaller, better, and slightly higher resolution, which means they can see slightly smaller things, sort of fuzzily. Um, and we we worked a lot with this in in the the actual controversy was was between us and it was big enough that a few times during the rehearsals we kind of stopped and started arguing about like the calibration methods we generally, we still do really. we still occasionally do because my survey is still better than yours if you think better means <laughs> something that's worse but you have to then work harder to make it nearly as good then you you could say that you guys definitely work in a more creative oh, way like... creative which isn't always good being Joe, creative Joe, you know. Joe. well let's just not go here we could do we show. could do a whole we could thing about this, we actually. could we could yeah. literally talk yeah. about is, it, is this show in february mostly going to consist of you arguing there will be some of that less so than in previous ones because we've because kind we're of friends reconciled. now we're friends now we're yes. working on the same project now so yes. we've almost finished our different projects so yeah. i was co-running the european one and joe was a 
a, a cog, a cog in the wheel <laughs> of the American one. It's not down. an American it's one. It was American. It's not American. It's Spanish, UK, France, oh, Germany. Whatever. It's mainly American. All these American countries. Yeah, <laughs> cowboy main. hats and hamburgers that they have in Anyway, Spain. we've almost finished those projects and our results now agree with each other, whereas they, they didn't. They, did. that is they true, didn't yes. agree with each other when we did the show last time. That is true. And that now true. I think I'd like to point out that our results haven't changed, but yours have. Um, yours have changed as well. Not really. They, it suddenly goes up and Basically, then down they, again. they move together. Moved we, together. We, we agree with each other. And now we're working on another big, mega, awesome project yeah. called the Vera Rubin Observatory. And now we're best of pals, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're arguing about um, how much structure there is in the universe and what it looks like. So mm. when we look out into the universe, we see parts of the universe with loads and loads of galaxies in very, very dense sort of massive areas. And we see these vast void areas as well. We see these huge areas that are not completely empty, but have um, much less in than everything else. And one thing we can ask about cosmology, about the universe is how do the, can we we quantify this? Can we say, you know, how much more stuff is there in the big areas and the empty areas? And we can ask how that's changed with time as we look back through the history of the universe, how has that how has that evolved? Um, and these things can tell us about the laws of gravity, about the, the early universe and what was present in the early universe, and how how things evolve with time, and how, how galaxies change, and all these kind of things. And so we're these are all measured by these different experiments. And there's there's so if you were in cosmology fifty years ago, they were having arguments like. Um, you know, is the universe expanding twice as fast mm. according to one team than the other team or that that kind yeah. of thing? Or, or you know, is, is there any matter in the universe? And they were arguing, what's the eventual fate of the universe going to be? These massive, massive questions. And 100 years ago, they were arguing, are there such things as galaxies? And now we're arguing about like 5% differences yeah. between two numbers. So actually we've converged, but managed to retain the same level of controversy and argument. Yeah, and even. we had to invent two dark fairies to explain everything we're seeing. So this, the dark matter and dark energy in our universe, we, we, we need them to explain our observations, but we have literally no idea what they are. Need, and you don't either. I mean, this is not... I don't, but I'm sort of willing to pretend. Yeah, we can <laughs> in pretend. In a way that you're not. So. No. <laughs> So one of the projects you were referring to earlier was your uh, your big map of dark matter. Tell me a bit about that. And Joe, were you involved in that as well? Or, or Joe's map is bigger than my map, but my map is better than my Joe's map. My map is five map. times bigger than Catherine's map. Yeah, but it's not. And... It's not about the size, Joe. <laughs> it's not about the size. It's about the accuracy, the robustness. Joe's map is prettier. We did one show, we did one comedy show once where Joe decided to change the script halfway through and he got his map printed out on this massive, massive, like big, big picture frame and he hid it behind the stage and then he was like right everyone this is Catherine's map and he printed it out on a piece of A4 paper and it like crumpled it up so it looks really rubbish and he was like and here's my map, walked around the back of the stage, comes back with this massive map printed out. He threw me off. I forgot the script. I I like to try and throw Catherine off a little bit in each show we do. So I always add something that we haven't rehearsed just to keep a little bit of energy going. Because she's very so Catherine is a person who likes to prepare. I, think prepare, I like and, to be prepared. And has a really good memory. I have an appallingly bad memory. Mm. Um, and so the only way I can really make things interesting is to kind of improvise a little bit. Otherwise, I not improvise, but but 
change things, make things exciting. Um, so I, I quite like to throw up Catherine's preparations in the hope that it makes things a little bit more sparky and exciting. Hmm. And I, I think I think I think that's fun. I enjoy that. Anyway, these maps of dark matter, they tell you where the dark matter is in our universe. And uh, they, if you when you look out into the universe, you can see galaxies. You can't see the dark matter because it's invisible. Um, but there is five times as much dark matter as there is the the stuff that you can see. Or six if you if you believe Catherine's team. <laughs> No, 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 that's that's the line from the old script. We agree with each other now. <laughs> <laughs> so the um yeah, so when you look at these maps of dark matter, it's like it's like you can put on spectacles to see the dark matter and, and where both of us are seeing big clumps of dark matter, that's sort of housing all of these galaxies. And it's really beautiful to look at. And it it's amazing that we've come so far that you used to be able to have these these massive computer simulations of what the universe would look like if you could see the dark matter. And then there's sort of the techniques that Joe and I have been working on for all our career and using these massive telescopes, we can now actually um, map out where all this invisible dark matter is. And it's it's quite amazing and beautiful because it looks just like the computer simulation said it would look. And this is getting bigger and bigger. So the new survey that we're both involved in, Vera Rubin, is going to measure about 40% of the sky. So we're measuring bigger and bigger areas. So for the first time in the history of humanity, really, we are mapping a sizable fraction of the whole universe, yeah. which I think is kind of kind of incredible. So we've, we've kind of upscaled everything. 40% just sounds like an extraordinary um, percentage. I, I'm sure I read somewhere that you, you can only see about 5% of the universe is that right? right well yeah that's that's the cool thing about what we do which is lensing so you can only only about five percent of the universe gives off light in any way so so that's what we're we say dark things like dark matter and dark energy we're talking about um types of things in the universe that don't give off any light whatsoever so you can't see them all reflect light or Absolutely. block light yeah. block light, anything like that and um, so only a tiny fraction that's that five percent you said is ordinary atomic matter like we're made of so we're made of of uh, you know ordinary matter um but we think 95 percent of the universe is made of other stuff and you can never see that stuff directly or at least we've no one's found a way of seeing that stuff directly um but the cool thing about this lensing thing that we work on is that we can see it indirectly so we can look at how its gravity affects things around it um so when we look at distant galaxies, we see or we can detect the fact that their light has been subtly distorted and bent by the gravity of, thing, of stuff in between us and those galaxies. And that stuff is mostly dark, um, but we can, we can map this dark stuff by looking at how it affects the things around it. So someone wanted to use the example of if you're looking at a, um, a dance like a like a uh, people dancing in a in a dark room, and you've got the the men wearing their dark suits and the women wearing white dresses or something, um, or vice versa these days. Um, <laughs> you can um, you, you you would see you wouldn't see the people in the dark suits, but you'd see the white people in white dresses spinning around them, um, and that's the kind of thing we're looking for. That you can't see anything directly, so it's all indirect. I like that analogy. I've heard that analogy. Stole that from someone, but I can't remember who. Oh, was a great analogy. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice. Um, Catherine, it'd be good to talk a little bit about your new role as astronomer at Royal Scotland. Yeah, Joe doesn't. Joe doesn't like talking about it because you know it just you know accentuates the differences in our status. I think that's an upper limit to the number of times a day one should say the phrase "astronomer royal for Scotland," <laughs> and I think you're four or five times higher than that number. <laughs> It's a bit exciting though. I mean, come on, there's only been 10 astronomer royals for Scotland before me. 
I mean, it's quite cool, Joe. No, no, I, 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 and one thing we say in the in the in the comedy is that we think this is really exciting stuff you're going to be doing with this role. I think that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. Yes. Other than the tiara, um, what does it mean for you? <laughs> so, <clears throat> back in back in the old days, the queen or king of the time would would appoint their royal astronomer to do useful things for the country. So the very, very first astronomer royals were uh, interested in how to navigate um, using the stars um, because they were on sort of trade trade missions to to, to go and plunder the empire. Um, so those were those were the useful things that the astronomer royals used to do. Sort of coming a little bit further forward, they built the the royal observatories. So uh, there's one in Greenwich and the one in Edinburgh. Uh, the one in Greenwich is is now a museum, um, and uh, the one in Edinburgh is still a working observatory. Um, but sort of coming forward to the present day, what useful thing am I doing for <laughs> for the country? So I think my role now is to share astronomy with with everyone. It's it's the easiest way to get people excited about science because it's so immediate you know you just you, you go out at night and and, and look up at it and it's there um and you know dark skies in in uh in in storm away <laughs> um it's going to be you know it's it's so immediate it's so there it's part of each and of our everyday lives um and trying to get that awe and, and wonder of what you see in the night sky and to get more people switched on to science because somehow we have this this real disconnect like ev everyone loves the stars and they love the planets and they love the idea of the universe and the multiverse but then when you ask sort of high school kids you know do you like science mm, it's a bit boring mm, it's a bit difficult and somehow we've, we've got a disconnect there between just how awesome science really is and 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 people not taking it up as careers so that's that's what i'm really focused on is is sort of just sharing with people how how amazing the technology is now what we can do to understand our universe and mm. um and hopefully encouraging more people from all walks of life all backgrounds to get more involved in science i mean one of the things you've talked about is um uh, making telescopes much more accessible to kids and, and putting them in in community venues like all around the country and particularly particularly in rural areas where you can really see the stars much better and and you've talked about how um primary school age children have this great passion and curiosity um, uh, about science and then as you say that's that sort of seems to tail off um, um when they become high school kids why do you think that is do you have theories oh, it's really hard i mean i think it's kind of it's really just hardwired into our culture isn't it i mean you 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 only have to switch on the TV when the scientists come on. They're a mad boffin, you know. <laughs> I mean, the, the word mad boffin just translates to scientists, really, mm, doesn't it? Um, and it's very hard to shield our, our kids from that. Um, you know, they have they have so many wonderful choices and opportunities at school. So many exciting things to learn, and science is just one of them. Yet they're getting this this sort of constant culture that science is really difficult. Oh, it's really hard. Or scientists for research kind of person yeah. in particular yeah, yeah, if you ask kids to draw a scientist I think they you know they draw the same picture every time which is kind of an Einstein picture you know white lab coat and grey hair and old man that yeah. kind of picture so and I think that the homeschooling that uh, that a lot of parents have experienced over the the last uh, few years might have done even more damage in this regard so I found it when I was homeschooling my own kids that when they were doing the subject areas that I found difficult at school I found it much harder to uh, 
to keep my uh, my attention there and to help them with it. Whereas when they were doing the maths and the science, I was super excited. I was like, oh, let's do this. Let's do some more experiments. And I, and I do worry that in other families, the same will have happened, but obviously in, in reverse, that, that, you know, there'll have been the kids. Maths is hard. Every, everything you do at school is hard. You have to work everything. But if, you're, if your parents were saying to you, oh, I... I could never do the maths either. Don't worry about it. Then I, I worry that whole homeschooling thing is, has really embedded those that cultural misconception about science just being too difficult for mere mortals. And it's not. Science is so creative. I mean, there are some really stupid scientists. Really stupid. <laughs> it's not as like it's not as hard as people think it is, and it's yeah. it's a thing that anyone you can be from any background, you can be from any, and that's that's kind of a nice thing about it. There are fewer. There's not. It, there are cultural assumptions baked into it in many cases in the practice of science, but in the actual results of certainly astronomy, it's more accessible. Yeah. Univer, it's more universal than most activities. I would I would say. I'm yeah. sure you could find people who would argue from that extensively from a philosophy background, but. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't listen to those people, so it's, no, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so getting telescopes out into these centres. So, I'm very conscious that there's, there's loads of amazing opportunities for kids to get involved in science, but it, it means that their parents have to take them. So, they either have to be rich enough to be able to travel to to these different places to take or have parents who are sufficiently interested. So the reason why I want to get telescopes in all of our outdoor centres in Scotland is because the majority of our, our primary school kids do visit them at, at some point. And so it just makes that opportunity accessible to everyone. Modulo, you know, the weather and all of that. But uh, that's just, that's... that's Nothing you can do about that. Nothing you can do about the weather. <laughs> um, this is another kind of quite serious question. Sorry, but... Um, uh, Obviously, a lot has been made of the fact that you are the first female astronomer royal for Scotland. And I've noticed that when you've been giving interviews about this, you've kind of em- emphasized diversity in general, you know, and, 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 and how science needs more kind of diversity in general. I wonder if you could speak about a bit about that and what's, what's, what is possible to do about it. Do you, do you want to handle that one, Jane? <laughs> a man's perspective on this question. <laughs> first female. Isn't it crazy that we're still having first female stories in in, in 2020? And um, I think part of the reason why I'm first Catherine, female you know it's 2021, right? Is it? Well, we're recording no, it's this. 2022. Oh yes, because we're not <laughs> recording this last year. Anyway, whatever. Let's not worry about what year it is. <laughs> I said 2020. Oh, sorry, I apologise. Sorry. Should we go back to the beginning of that? <laughs> I won't interrupt with a thing that was less funny than I was hoping. Why don't you ask the question again, Andrew? The, just addressing the general question of diversity in science and, um, and, yeah. and education and opportunities and, and what can be done about that? So in astronomy, we, we answer some of the biggest questions that, that there are, like, you know, are we alone in the universe? How did the universe begin? How is it going to end there? They're really big, big questions. And if it's the same education system and the same type of person trying to answer those questions you're 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 not going to necessarily get to the right answer um so it's really important that we hear different voices and different experiences when we're trying to to answer these big questions and you know, we, joe and i are now working in this in this big team for vera rubin and, and we're working with people from all the way across the world like there are so many different countries involved in this major big new experiment which is fantastic because we're all coming from different education systems um but the so that that sort of diversity of of culture but i think the the 
gender aspect is really interesting as well because we do we've grown up with these different cultures embedded into us and we come at problems from different different ways and it's not it's not necessarily genetic it's just kind of the way we've been brought up differently men and women are brought up differently (laughs) whether we like it or not and so we do try and solve problems in different ways um and and it's just so important to have all of those different voices and experiences because we otherwise we'll never find out the the answers and it's yeah I, I guess I would add that what's kind of a lot of people have clocked within academia in general, but also physics and astronomy in particular, is that just trying to be fair and, and unbiased doesn't guarantee anything when, A, you have lots of built-in assumptions about people that in terms of, you know, racism and sexism, and you don't have to be a kind of evil, cackling KKK member to be... <laughs> to be to have assumptions that are negative about people positive about people that those things everyone has those to some degree and and you can't just ignore them and not thinking about them doesn't actually solve anything and ditto with men and women that the sort of uh, that 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 thing as well it's not enough to just say oh i'm i'm being meritocratic and unbiased because that isn't a solution and 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 in, in science we talk a lot about systematic error so that means kind of errors that trick you into thinking you're doing something right when actually you're doing something wrong and they're very hard to detect and hard to see. And you can you can absolutely write down a very clear and simple statement of how you're being unbiased and, and careful and, it's, and it can just be wrong <laughs> because your your inputs are not what you expect them to be. So there's background assumptions in culture of people who, or, or there's been a kind of filter of people who are getting to the point where they can get involved in science. Like you were saying, if, if, if the, the kind of things you've talked about that put people off science affect women more than men, yeah when they're younger then you're not getting yeah. the, the, there are people you're missing out on getting into astronomy because they've been put off by something else and that that can preferentially hit different people yeah, it's, it's a really interesting notion though that, that, that your kind of cultural background can impact on your thinking about astronomy i, th- I think that's a fascinating idea yeah, like how do you go to solve a problem like the the, the the best thing about science is you are you are asking questions that haven't been asked before and answering questions that haven't been asked before you know it's 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 it's, that's what makes it so exciting and so coming from different backgrounds and different cultures what 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 are the interesting questions you know that's that's sort of step one and and people have very different ideas about what's interesting and and you know there's there's a limited amount of brain power so we should be (laughs) we should be focusing on the things that are most interesting and most exciting and then and then just there are so many different ways to solve Mm -hmm. solve problems um and that's it's so great working with different people because they come up with ideas that you would never have thought of and then at the same time you can add in your bits and and you get to the solution in a much faster route there's two groups of people who I really love working with and one is the people that you immediately click with and you're in the same wavelength and you're like oh yeah everything you say they they know what you're talking about and vice versa and that's great but there's another kind of person that's really interesting to work with which is people who's always come from a thing you would never expect and will always say something like oh I didn't I would never it would never have occurred to me to think of it in that way yeah. and and this is even more important in these giant collaborations that we're working in now where you know there are different ways of working in teams there are different ways of moving a team towards a goal and I think that's another area where that kind of diversity is really really important yeah I wanted to ask you about um the lockdown something we've all been going through the past couple of years has the lockdown been good for astronomy or bad for astronomy? I remember you noting, Catherine, that membership of the Astronomical Society of Edinburgh kind of really went up 
um, during lockdown, which is an example of people becoming more interested, perhaps slowing down a bit and taking more time to look at the stars because they've got nothing else to do. <laughs> but um, also, I think you said that um, some observatories around the world have been closed. So, in, kind of in general, what what has what the, the impact of lockdown been on the world of astronomy? So there are pros and cons. So the amateur astronomy sector has grown significantly over lockdown, and I think that that is because you 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 were locked down, and uh, and so you couldn't you couldn't go exploring geographically anymore, and so people started exploring the the heavens instead. Um, and what's also been really exciting for me in the amateur astronomy sector is their meetings went online, which suddenly extended them to a sort of a global reach. So um, I'm, I'm the honorary president of the Astronomical Society of Edinburgh. And uh, before lockdown, they would typically have or 60, 70 people would, would come to their, their um, meetings that were held in, in a, a church in Edinburgh, a church meeting house in Edinburgh. Um, but now they regularly have over 3,000, 4,000 people watching their YouTube videos of their meetings. And, you know, if, if we're talking about wanting to um, make astronomy more diverse, you know, th this is this is reaching people all the way across the world who, who didn't have the opportunity to join these these sort of um, meetings before to learn more about the science behind the astronomy that they were looking at in the sky. So, so that aspect has been really, really positive. I think it's worth mentioning that in, in many fields, if you said amateur, that would be a, you know, not necessarily a positive thing. Oh, yeah, no, it's, which it's, is absolutely in astronomy. The, the amateur astronomers know much more than we do about lots of things. If you asked us <laughs> what's that light in the sky, no idea. we no might idea. be like, well, it's either Jupiter or a plane. Like, is, uh, is it moving? Uh, okay, uh, maybe it's it's um, Whereas <laughs> the amateur astronomers know a, a fascinating lot more than we do about the actual night sky. So we're extra galactic astronomers who yeah. look at distant galaxies, um, but they know a great deal. So it's that's not it. So it's, we, we, we love the amateur astronomy community yeah, fantastic. it's fantastic community. anyway yeah. so you were saying about um, so so that's the amateur astronomy sector now the professional astronomy sector mixed i think with the lockdown so you were saying about the the actual telescopes being shut down so um my brilliant survey <laughs> is um a public survey for the european southern observatory which is in chile and there are two sites in Chile, one in Paranal and one in Lucia. And they're very, very remote locations. You're you're very, very far away from hospitals and, and medical care. Um, and so they they did absolutely did the right thing and they closed them down for, for months, many, many months, um, which which was completely the right thing to do. And so just no data was taken. And these 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 telescopes, you know, they they are incredibly expensive and that was a, a lot of time and uh, They've never ever been shut down for that length of time before, but the 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 director of the observatory absolutely made the right call that he had to prioritise the health of his staff. And now they so they slowly have built it up. Now they're back to full operations, but only in what we call service mode. So it used to be that uh, astronomers like us could go out to the telescopes to use them, but now we're interacting with telescope operators there to make sure they're, they're taking our data for us, um, and that's sort of restricting the number of people who are actually going on site to to keep it as safe as possible um so yeah that that did take a hit so uh, for me the, one of the big changes is that the big collaborations like we're in haven't been able to meet in person and that's the kind of thing that doesn't really affect you to begin with hmm. um but gradually starts to, to change the culture of things that that meeting in person is a great reset and a great like it reminds you that you like the people that you're working <laughs> with your friends that you you know if you've seen somebody 
you know, drunk, then it really helps. Not that we get drunk in collaboration. No, we're very focused on the science. Don't go. It's true. It's true. Drinking and dancing at all. Well, I can't dance at all. You really can't dance. No, no, it's true. Um, (laughs) So uh, that's made a big change in that for me. And I'm really looking forward to eventually getting back to normal there and and being able to meet my colleagues. There's people I've worked with for two years now who I've never met. Um, and I, and I, you know, some people can cope with that, and I, I can't really. I, I really miss meeting people and being able to kind of, you know, have a different. Mood. But the really interesting thing I saw was about introverts and extroverts. So I saw a lovely little analysis saying, you know, how when you're on a, if you, if you, if you're on a, a big meeting on a Zoom call or or a, or a teleconference, then you have this. It, it's hard to communicate. You often feel like you've missed something or you've missed. A, chance to say something or you can't quite get the word in edgeways and I saw a lovely analysis sort of saying how extroverts find that is how introverts find normal meetings or in-person <laughs> yeah. meetings which is that kind of slight anxiety about being able to talk properly and the feeling that you you're not quite in the flow in the sync of the conversation in sync with the conversation I, I found that very very useful to try and say okay here's a way we can and that's that's not a traditional aspect of diversity, is that introvert mm-hmm. extrovert thing. But I think it's I think it's important as well to think about that kind of, that kind of thing. I should say at this point for for anyone listening that um, while I am not in the same room as uh, Catherine and Joe, Catherine and Joe are in the same room as each other, um, <laughs> which, which I think helps with, with interviews like this. And um, and yeah, I'm I'm really grateful uh, to you both for for, for taking the time. I, I think this is probably the only time you will actually get to be in a, a room together for the next wee while. But um, so I'm grateful for you taking the time to it. Um, I'm going to finish by um, asking, uh, just to put you on the spot, do you have a favourite joke about astronomy um, that uh, you would like to share with us? Well, that's good. What, what works without context? Um, so I, I, my first astronomy joke, I don't know if it's the best, but my first one was, um, uh, I like my galaxies like I like my women in large numbers, blurry on a computer screen. And I was, I was, I was quite proud of that, actually. I know, I know, but that was... <laughs> That's my first one. Yeah. I've got one from the Beano. <laughs> yeah. It's not very good, though, so I think I should just keep it to myself. Oh, well, you have to tell me now. Oh, you have to tell me. I'm really rubbish it at takes, telling So I, I write most of the stuff that the yeah, jokes we Joe, do together. Yeah, Joe's the funny one. I'm just... And it takes quite a long time to rehearse. <laughs> I have to... like, no, Catherine, that bit has to be audible, otherwise it doesn't work. Or... Okay. No, no, no pressure. Gravity, are you ready? Are you ready? Gravity yeah. is the strongest force in the universe. But if you remove it, you get gravy. That was quite funny. That's quite good. Yeah. It was from yeah. the Beano. That's that's the level we're at. <laughs> <laughs> Come along to our comedy yeah, show. It'll be much funnier than that. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much. <laughs> but, um, and we uh, really very much look forward to seeing you in February. Exciting. Thank you very much. We're really looking forward to coming along. Yeah. You've been listening to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival takes place each February at Onlanta and across the Isle of Lewis. The festival is supported by Caledonia McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise and Culture and Business Fund Scotland in partnership with Lewes Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, Callanish Visitor Centre and Gallon Head Community Trust. 
Our podcast is created by Anne Lanter in association with The Scotsman and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website at www.lanter.com. <laughs>